Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a really important conversation. It's typically done at Davos. It is maybe done at Jackson Hole. It is done at world meetings where she hold co- holds court with profound and original perspectives, uh, perspective, I should say, on Central Asia. Afsani Beshloff is with Rock Creek, the chief executive officer. Yes, very good on investment, expert on natural gas, but also expert on her Iran and all of Central Asia and it is in crisis. Ms. Besloss, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, back to the 1950s, the Iran-Pakistan-India gas pipeline. You've lived it at the Khyber Pass uh, in West Pakistan, the romance of the British, the great game, and all that other malarkey. Is China going to come in and take over the vacuum of the iran Pakistan-India pipeline is the U.S. exits. Tom, uh, you always go straight to the uh, to the point of the matter, and it is really interesting. As you said, I've studied these natural gas pipelines going through um, all the way in Asia, but also in Europe, and no question that geopolitics is always more important than the physical aspect of these things. China is seeing uh, a void. You know, we saw the Russians losing Afghanistan. We saw us uh, pulling out um, as we speak. And uh, no question that the Chinese are seeing a big void. Um, and, uh, and they will take advantage <clears throat> because they will need a lot of energy uh, to continue their growth. And they know that natural gas right. is part of that solution to their coal problem. Our, our core memory here is cobalt in Africa, how the Chinese came in and worked out long-term contracts on obscure minerals. How will they work with the Taliban? Will it be the same method, long-term contracts with some things on the back end that maybe will give them an advantage? You know, um, again, uh, I'm not an expert on uh, on working with the Taliban, but um, I think what we're seeing this time around is that the, uh, the economic um, thinking at, on the Taliban side is not something that is clear, at least to the rest of the world. They're not a group that worked closely with the World Bank or with multilateral institutions or with aid organizations. So we have no idea how they will really behave when it comes to uh, having international agreements, if any, yeah. and to sticking to it. So those I, uh, I would not really um, think about uh, relying on. I think the question is, where does the pipeline go? It doesn't have to go through Afghanistan. In the meantime, Asfane, we are looking at a Jackson Hole that has a very big effect, potentially at least, on the international community, at least the international community that does fall within the international banking world. There is a question of whether any kind of taper announcement would affect the international community arguably more than even domestic markets in the United States. What do you think? You're so right, Lisa. I think uh, the whole international point of Jackson Hall has been a little bit diminished uh, in the last few weeks, and people have not been talking about it. I think a lot of people are disappointed not to be there in person and for it to be virtual. But um, I mean, my own thinking is that um, is that tapering is not going to start 
in um, um, in this meeting, and uh, I don't think that uh, that Jay Powell is going to um, go there uh, at this meeting. It's more likely in November, December. But no question, the conversations that uh, usually take uh, take part in Jackson Hall uh, at the margins. Uh, are going to be the ones that will decide in terms of how the central bankers are communicating with each other, not just to the rest of the world. And those are the ones that I would watch for. And again, I don't think that they will be talking about it too much about U.S. tapering at this particular meeting this Friday. Okay, so let's say uh, you're correct and the Fed does follow that timeline. What are the ramifications for emerging markets, for asset prices following a slowdown in these bond purchases? Um, so uh, as we've seen, a number of emerging markets have been already starting to increase their own interest rates. We've seen that happen um, over the last few months. And we've seen actually some more uh, tightening uh, in emerging markets. Again, as the usual sort of course of things, um, the emerging markets that have a lot of U.S. denominated debts and do not have a lot of exports uh, that are U.S. dollar based will be the ones to get um, uh, get into difficulty. I think given the way tapering will happen, which is probably incredibly gradually and not sudden, probably the impact on emerging markets will be something that is slower. I, the third job of the Fed, which is stability of uh, the global economy, the U.S. economy, of course, but also the global economy will not be something that Jay Powell will be forgetting to consider. We've been having a lot of conversations about moral hazard. What is the level and the risk right now of moral hazard if we don't do something, if we don't taper as quickly as we should? I think the big problem, if we don't uh, start tapering, whether it, you know, it is in October or November or December, more likely November, December time, is the pressure of inflation. Again, uh, our thinking at Rock Creek and uh, my thinking is that the supply chain problems are so huge, so overwhelming, number one. And all the other things that are going on um, in um, in terms of uh, COVID related problems in uh, various economies, that they are the one uh, they are the things that are governing price increases much more than typical inflationary pressures. So the issue really at hand is whether uh, we get we are too late to move. But in general, inflation is a slow process. And if we see it take off, I think uh, Jay Powell and his colleagues at the Federal Reserve have lots of tools to catch up quickly mm. if they need to. So not so worried about moral hazard. Dr. Beshloff, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Rock Creek this morning. What we're supposed to do is dutifully come out right now and talk about price up, yield down, or price down, yield up, talk full faith in credit, IG high-yield bonds with Bob Michael. He's been at J.P. Morgan for 400 years and joins us this morning. Thrilled that he could join us. Bob, we're going to spend some serious time here on the great unspoken, and you nail it in your research note. Stephanie Kelton at Stony Brook has changed the world. She came out with modern monetary theory. We are in an MMT experiment of some type as well. And the financial media is not talking about this enough because everybody sort of wishes the theory would go away, which is unfair to something that's had such an impact. Are you a believer in MMT? 
morning, Tom. It's hard not to be a believer. It seems like the go-to policy response now in a crisis where the role of governments is to borrow large amounts of debts and deploy it through fiscal stimulus and try to shortcut to recovery. And the role of central banks is to print lots of money and buy that debt and ensure that the cost of the recovery is affordable. I think it's worked. It's hard to see where any pain has been created or where there will be problems down the road. I think we right. all sense that there's got to be something. What I'd like to see out of Jackson Hole is for the central bankers to say, this is an emergency policy response. This isn't a normal part of our toolkit. They need to draw the line somewhere here. And I'm not sure, Lisa, and I think this is really important with no criticism of people like Claudia Sam and Stephanie Kelton. I'm not even criticizing their cats, and they have cats at home. It's very evident on, on Twitter that they do. Lisa, nobody has an exit strategy from our pandemic MMT. Well, no one has a sense of exactly what the consequences will be either. Bob, we talk about the potential of uh, some deleterious, to use the same word from the day before, uh, ramifications from the MMT types of policies that you talk about, yet we're not seeing them. Yields are not going up. Inflation, to the extent that it is going up, is recognized as passing and somewhat decelerating. So when are we going to see the negative ramifications from MMT-like policies? Well, we're at an interesting point right now with Chair Powell and the Fed in the crosshairs of what's going on in Washington. And he's got Jackson Hole in the September FOMC meeting to start backing out of this. Uh, But right now, we're well past the crisis and the recovery is underway and we're recovering a lot of lost jobs and we're going to close the output gap by the end of this year. And if MMT continues, with half a trillion in an infrastructure bill and three and a half trillion in various forms of stimulus, and the Fed continues to print money and buy debt, I think there's a moral hazard there where you're looking at the Fed underwriting a lot of government policies. So I think it's a very good time for the Fed to assert its independence, draw a line in the sand, and say that they're bringing these things to an end now. When, though, and what commentary do you need to hear to get them to do that? Is that inflation goes from transitory to worrying? I think that's part of it. I I think right now they can point to substantial further progress hasn't been made on a lot of the things that they look at. When when they look at where policy rates are, um, they don't need to be at zero for a lot longer. They don't need the $120 in in large-scale asset purchases every month, they can move to something that's more normal. I step back and I look at where things are. And if this had been a normal cycle, say going back, I don't know, 20 to 40 years ago, maybe even 15 or so years ago, at this point in the cycle, I'd expect the Fed funds rate to be 2%, around a zero real yield. And I'd expect the 10-year Treasury to be around 3% about a 1% real yield. So the fact that we're not there tells you the amount of distortion that the central banks are creating. Bob, if the Fed were to say at the Jackson Hole meeting they are planning to start tapering their bond purchases September, November, December, at some point in the near future and indicated that it would be faster than expected, what would be the market response? Well, I think the market response would be 
a gradual rise in rates. And I, I know there's some debate out there about whether Fed tapering leads to a rise in rates or not. I don't get that at all. Let me tell you, <laughs> if if bond prices aren't the very definition of asset price inflation, you've got a central bank printing unlimited amounts of its own money and going in and buying a specific asset class. If that's not how you inflate the price of an asset class, how do you? You look at the negative 1% real yield on 10-year treasuries, I think the first stop is to get to something that looks around a zero percent and and we'll get there. How do you manage that, Bob? Bob, we're going to run out of time, but how do you affect a hundred basis point move in the real yield? Do you do it off the nominal or do you do it with the help of inflation expectations? I think you do it with the combination of both, but mostly with nominal yields, mostly with the realization that you don't have the 800 pound gorilla of the Fed sitting on the bond market and yeah. maybe other central banks will start to dial down uh, Bob, their large scale. You know, Farrell right now is writing on manuscript, Drawdown Meditation, Bob. It's going to be a really important book. Um, uh, you know, I, I think Barnes and Noble is like waiting with boxes and boxes of it. You got to do a book, Bob Michael on MMT. That would be a, that would be just wonderful. <laughs> it would really work. With JP Morgan Asset Management, they've been on fire. Mark Zandi, sifting through all the crosswinds here. Uh, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist, a well-renowned and well-respected uh, economist who has been often cited uh, for being accurate in a time of such great uncertainty. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. We start to look out to September, to October, to November, regardless of what the Fed does, how can you characterize the momentum behind this labor market right now? Good, very good. We're creating lots of jobs. We created a, almost a million jobs in July. That's on top of a million jobs in June. I don't think we can sustain that pace, but if you told me the economy creates a half million jobs per month on average over the next 12, 18 months, uh, that'll bring unemployment back in close to full employment, something kind of in the mid 3% range uh, by late 22, early 23. That sounds about right to me. So it's good. All right. So everyone uh, agrees that it's good and the degree to which it is great or the degree to which we've got a tightness in a late labor market that perhaps isn't recognized is up for debate. However, there is also a question of the enhanced unemployment benefits, what the roll off will do. Will it allow more people or sort of push them back into the labor market or will it simply reduce the buying power of consumers that see uh, some of their income depleted? This is a great uncertainty. Where do you weigh in on that? Well, I, I, around the debate uh, uh, over whether the supplemental unemployment insurance, that's the $300 extra per week that uh, folks are getting in about half the states uh, that was part of the American Rescue Plan. Uh, I, I don't think that that had a major impact on the willingness of people to go to work. I mean, that's probably on the list of reasons, but it's towards the bottom of the list of reasons. And we got some data points regarding that late last week. We got state employment data for July, and you could see in July, and you know, you had half the states uh, 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 eliminate that the supplemental ins insurance benefit in July. There was no mm -hmm. uh, effect in employment in those states compared to states that uh, kept the unemployment insurance. So 
So, you know, a lot of data points to come, the script's still being written. We'll see, and I expect we'll see some impact, but it's really right. on the margin. In Mark, in the depths of 08, 09, you were the reigning optimist. You were the one everybody trotted out to say, you know what, folks, we're going to recover from this. It took some time, but folks, Mark Zandi absolutely nailed the economic recovery of 12, 13, 14, and on. You have a heated note, Mark Zandi, saying would everybody calm down by the overheating effects of this trillions of dollars of stimulus. Why should I be calm about overheating? Well, the first thing I'd say is there's a lot, still a lot of slack in the economy, Tom. I mean, the unemployment rate is still 5.4%, full employment, something in the mid threes, maybe even the low threes. We still have millions of people who stepped out of the workforce during the pandemic who aren't even counted as unemployed. So, you know, we got a long way to go. I, you know, we're heading in the right direction. We're creating lots of jobs. So we got right. a, a pretty deep hole to dig out of. And this support we're talking about now, the, you know, something, some flavor of the Build Back Better agenda that President Biden, uh, you know, unveiled earlier this year, that doesn't really kick in until 2023, 2024. And, and to, to a degree that, you know, I don't really think that is an inflationary issue. The other thing I quickly point out, is there's a lot of aspects of the plan that address inflation. So, for example, a big part of the plan is to increase housing supply. And we all know there's a very severe shortage of affordable housing, and that's driving up rents. And rent growth is the single most important aspect right. of inflation. So, you know, that will go a long way to addressing that particular right. aspect of inflation. Mark, there was a, a folk group years ago called Stubbs, Blinder, and Zandy. They were outstanding. I loved what they did. They played coffee houses uh, all, all through eastern Pennsylvania. David Stubbs over in London with J.P. Morgan is just brilliant on the technological overlay and our underestimation of productivity. You've studied this with the former vice chairman of the Fed. How do you take in the technology overlay right now and what it will do to wage growth? Do we grow Mostly worry about wage growth where we should not. Yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, that's a great point. I, you know, wage growth has held up admirably well during the pandemic, and I do expect it to continue to accelerate as the labor market continues to improve. Unemployment comes in, but I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not concerned that this is inflationary because productivity growth has also accelerated. Now, part of that is, you, you know, uh, cyclical related to the pandemic, measurement issues, all that kind of stuff. But abstracting from all that, looking through the noise, it feels like productivity growth, underlying productivity growth is accelerating. And there's many reasons for that. One is, I think, technology. You know, there's a lot of technologies out there that's just taking time for businesses to incorporate, incorporate into their business practices. But I think they are. And I think we are seeing productivity improve. And that, if, if that is the case, then, that, you know, that's a win-win, right? That's a win for businesses because they can you know, pay higher wages and still maintain their earnings is obviously a win for workers. It's a, you know, it's a reason to be more, uh, uh, feel more confident about our long-term fiscal situation because it means more tax revenue. You know, there's, a, there's endless reasons for optimism if, in fact, productivity growth has accelerated. And I, you know, it, you know, hard to know, but it feels like, uh, Tom, that uh, productivity, underlying productivity growth is improving. Mark, though, on that note, you mentioned that we may not get some of this fiscal stimulus until 2022, 2023. But by then, what is the argument that it's too late? Maybe the economy won't need it. Well, the uh, support we're talking about now, the fiscal package, the Build Back Better agenda, is not about short-term growth. It's about long-term growth. It's about lifting long-term growth, lifting productivity growth because of 
better public infrastructure, everything from roads to broadband. It's about uh, lifting labor force participation and labor force growth. That's, you know, if I give uh, uh, lower income, low middle income households support for child care and elder care and paid family leave, that's going to make it more likely that they can go to work. Right now, they can't, I mean, a lot of low income households, particularly women uh, in low income households, can't go to work because they can't pay for child care. And then this is helping free them up so they can go to work. So this is about long-term economic growth, and it's also about making sure that the benefits of the increase in long-term economic growth accrue to lower and middle-income households, the folks that have been left behind in our economy over the past three, four decades. Uh, Mark, this has been wonderful. Mark Zandi, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Moody's Analytics there with a, a decidedly optimistic cast. When you are on the train between Boston and New York, you look across the water at the secrets of the General Dynamics Company. Arguably, Phoebe Novakovic has resurrected General Dynamics into what it used to be and what it is moving forward. This is a really important interview with David Rubenstein, of course, peer-to-peer conversations. David, she just basically rescued General Dynamics. There's no no beating around the bush. What is the Novakovic? Novakovic method? Well, she's very tough. She's very smart. Um, she knows the defense industry quite well. She'd worked at the Pentagon for quite some time, and she, at OMB, was overseeing the defense budget for some time. When she took over in 2013, the previous year, General Dynamics had lost about six or $700 million. Yeah. And so she turned it around, and now the stock is up about 120% since she's been the CEO. So a very good turnaround story. It's a good turnaround story, but as you well know, at Carlisle, this is so much a contract-by-contract, boomer-bust business as well. Has she McKinsey'd it into a different kind of company, or is it the same defense contractor that you and I used to stare at across the bay in Groton? Well, it's a little different in that many defense companies today are making a lot of money on IT or electronic-related things or things relating to cyber. And that's an important part of what General Dynamics is doing as well. But the bread and butter of General Dynamics has long been tanks and submarines, and they are very, very good at that. They also own Gulfstream, and Gulfstream has been extremely profitable in recent years. Well, it is. You know, I decided not to go for the Gulfstream 700, David. I just thought it was too extravagant for what we're doing at Surveillance. Francine wanted to go there. Tell us about Gulfstream. Is it a bolt-on business, or is it really part of her vision? Well, when they bought it from uh, Teddy Forsman many years ago, it was seen as uh, uh, un- unclear what yeah. its mission was um, because it really wasn't a defense part of, uh, of uh, General Dynamics. It's not a defense uh, uh, industry uh, uh, kind, of company, kind of company. But in recent years, General Dynamics has really turned around Gulfstream to the point where it's clearly, the, in my view, the elite of, uh, of the business jet business in the United States. And they have done quite well in their G650s, their G700s, and so forth. So it's a very, very profitable business for them now. Mr. Rubenstein, it's incredible the timing of this interview as well, just given the events in Afghanistan. Any insight that you can glean from that interview just after the Taliban took over Kabul and, well, where we think about the future of defense spending? Well, there's always a... thought in Washington that when presidents of the United States are Democrats and the Congress is Democratic, probably defense spending will go down. 
But I think the events in Afghanistan will probably make it more likely defense spending will go up more than even President Biden uh, proposed, because it's clear there is still uh, a lot of uncertainty out there in the world. And I think that what happened in Afghanistan, without assessing whether there was fault on somebody's part or not, is clearly going to embolden people to think we need to have a much bigger defense budget, in my view. David, one final question, if we could, and it folds in from Taylor's good question. In our business and in our government relationship with China, do you look at Afghanistan as being a change agent for how we speak to China? I think Afghanistan is going to make it more difficult for the United States to persuade some of our allies to follow our lead. And so with respect to China, China is probably going to have a closer relationship with Afghanistan in the future than, than we are going to have, clearly. And I think as a result, it will change the dynamics somewhat. But our own relationship with China really is not dependent on Afghanistan. And that's a complicated relationship. And I don't think President Bush, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, President uh, Biden and President Xi are likely to meet anytime soon. Uh, the, the sooner they meet, I think it'd be good, but I just don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Right. David Rubenstein, thank you so much. And congratulations. A really inspired peer-to-peer uh, conversation. Look for that. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.